On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. A bit of a variety on the front pages of your Sunday newspapers. Uh, we'll start with the Sunday Times. Far-right plan to increase violent attacks. Guardia are on high alert for further violent protests by far-right extremists, emboldened by their success in driving homeless migrants from a makeshift camp in Dublin City, which they later burnt down. Images of marchers descending on the campsite at Sandwith Street and the camp being set on fire were shared widely on social media last night using the hashtag The Battle of Pierce Street. Gardaí say the incident has turbocharged the far-right movement and led them to begin making plans to organise protests across the city and country. Um, that, of course, was the incident on Friday night, which you heard Ellen talk about in the news bulletin, something which was condemned unequivocally uh, by Leo Varadkar yesterday. We will be hearing later this hour uh, from Nick Henderson, the CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, about all of that. Uh, the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday, uh, row over bid to cut ch- costs of childcare. Tensions have erupted between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael over plans to use the record budget surplus to slash childcare costs by up to 25%, the Mail on Sunday can reveal. Leo Varadkar wants to unveil a major new childcare package in the next budget as part of a plan to buy back support. Well, that's that's their words. Buy back support for his party ahead of the next general election. The Fine Gael leader also wants significant tax changes to ease the burden on middle-income earners and to woo voters. But a senior Fianna Fáil source has criticised Mr Varadkar for raising expectations to gain a party advantage. A government source who spoke to the Mail on Sunday this weekend says Varadkar wants the childcare package to be the centrepiece of the first of two giveaway budgets between now and the election. But they say, sources say, that Varadkar will need the backing of his finance minister who is also coming under pressure from his Fianna Fáil cabinet colleagues to open the, per- open the purse strings for their departments. Uh, seem to recall Roderick Gorman on this programme and elsewhere um, saying that the last childcare cut was the first of two big ones and that they intended to do more. So uh, why there'd be a bit of pushback now at this point, I'm not quite sure, but we'll see. Uh, speaking of childcare, by the way, the Irish Sunday Mirror uh, leads today with the news that kids as young as 13 are being treated for sexually transmitted infections uh, with diagnoses among teenagers more than doubling in a year. Um, Business Post has the headline Ireland gridlocked. A special reports uh, about the state of the state, if that isn't too much of a play on words, and its inability to deliver in seri- um, several major areas. Uh, Pascal Donoghue has privately warned that the delivery of the state's 165 billion euro infrastructure plan this decade is at serious risk and says that new solutions must be found urgently. This comes as industry leaders, heads of state bodies and planning experts have highlighted that a decade of underinvestments in Ireland's critical infrastructure has left the country's power, water, housing and transport systems at breaking point. A special report by the Business Post reveals exasperation at the highest levels of the country's efforts to plan for future growth, managing the growth in population and to decarbonise the economy. One industry source describes Ireland's slow movement in infrastructure over the last decade as being akin to economic treason. Uh, And finally for now, the front page of the Sunday Independent. Two stories on the front page there. The main story is an interview conducted by Rodney Edwards with Nicola Gallagher, who is the estranged former wife of the uh, Derry GAA football manager Rory Gallagher, who made domestic abuse allegations against him online this week. Uh, She has spoken out for the first time since her Facebook post went viral. Uh, The mother of three has accused Mr Gallagher of a litany of physical and emotional abuse over a period of more than two decades. Uh, As you may know, Rory Gallagher stood aside as Derry senior football manager on Friday night. That was less than 48 hours before Derry were due to play the Ulster football final uh, this afternoon against Armagh. Uh, He said that the decision came out of a desire to protect his children from the ongoing turmoil. Uh, In an interview with Rodney Edwards in Sunday Sunday Independence, Nicola Gallagher said, 
I didn't do this out of revenge or for Rory to lose his job. I did this to share my experience and to help other women and men. I never did it to punish him. I did it to get it off my chest. And if it helps one woman or a man, then it will be worth it. Um, on the sidebar of the Sunday Independence, uh, and we'll kick off our newspaper review with this, uh, is an interesting story about the retail forum which took place on Wednesday. You might remember lots of reporting uh, about Neil Richmond bringing in the supermarkets to talk to them about why costs are so high and to make sure that they are passing on any cost reductions that they can to their customers. Uh, We learned today that the Junior Minister for Retail, Neil Richmond, asked supermarkets to sign off on a statement to the media after the meeting in which he failed to secure guarantees of price reductions. Uh, The person who's written that story is with us in studio, Hugh O'Connell, who's the Deputy Political Editor of the Irish and Sunday Independents. Hugh, talk us through what you're reporting, please, today. Yeah, so obviously this retail forum was uh, much uh, publicised starting kind of this time last week. Uh, Neil Richmond did a a bit of a media blitz uh, across this station uh, and others, Mm -hmm. uh, previewing his meeting of the retail forum on Wednesday. The retail forum is a a forum set up nearly 10 years ago now. It's uh, involved kind of interaction between the government and, and government departments and uh, the major uh, supermarket chains uh, and also retail representative groups and, and others as well. Um, and uh, the meeting was due to take place in June, was, was called forward to May uh, on the basis of the government being seen to do something about grocery price inflation. And um, Neil Richmond, in very strong language last week, was talking about, you know, we'll be, have a very frank discussion I would be looking for commitments from the retailers to reduce their costs to consumers. Um, we will uh, be telling them that you know we we reserve the right to impose price caps, although we don't want to do that under under the Consumer Protection Act 2007. So a lot of tough talk. Mm. Uh, but the meeting itself, from those I spoke to who were in the room, uh, transpired somewhat differently. I mean, one of the central things that Neil Richmond was saying was that he was he was going to produce evidence of of price rises and and, and potential price gouging. He talked about a dossier. Uh, There was no dossier uh, presented at the meeting, um, and the meeting itself was was more of a kind of around-the-table sort of exercise. Uh, Tesco, for example, pointed out that they, that very morning, had reduced the price of their own brand uh, bread by 10 cents. A lot of retailers pointing out that, you know, the the way the commodities market had gone, uh, commodity prices had been coming down since the middle of last year, that that would sort of start, begin to feed feed through to consumers um, as we we go through this year. So the expectation was that prices would be coming down anyway as as a result of that. They say. They say, right, um, and um, the, you know, there was. It was also pointed out that you know a lot of the government's uh, policy measures over the last few years have increased costs for uh, these uh, companies now. You know, that probably didn't get into too much the uh, the, the profits. So, what, what because, has the government done to make it dearer for them? So, they argue, for example, that the imposition of um, the increase in the minimum wage by eighty cents this year um, has uh, is one of the reasons why. Uh, costs have have gone up for them. Statutory sick pay is another, and they're also warning about the impact of the uh, auto enrollment pension scheme, which okay. is is due to be rolled out. So, so they look, reckon that, that all of that results in dearer groceries, and that it's the government well, has that's, contributed that's the to the argument rising that costs. they're making. Yeah. Um, okay. I suppose, uh, but they're also pointing out that uh, and Retail Ireland gave a presentation to this effect that. Uh, grocery prices uh, compared to the European, in, in, sorry, grocery inflation compared to other European countries in, uh, is is running at about ten percentage points behind the EU average, for example, in the last two years. So it's about seventeen percent versus about twenty seven percent on average across the European Union. 
So n- none of this seems to have been necessarily disputed by Neil Richmond. And, and as we point out in the Sunday Independence Day, at the end of the meeting, he, he reads out a statement that was subsequently released to the media that didn't really say anything uh, about mm. having secured any sort of commitment from the retailers other than that. Uh, where uh, what he said was, we received assurances from the retailers that the, that where reductions in input cost that where reductions in input costs filter through to products, consumers will benefit from this. So really, it's which, it's, which is a sort of an open ended, non committal. Well, it pledge. is, yeah, because it's basically we'll do it if we can. It's the retailers saying that look, if our costs come down, then we will pass that on to consumers. And I suppose we're seeing that already in terms of some of the reductions in in some of the yeah. staple products in recent weeks. But I suppose the point is, is that all of this was kind of happening anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the major supermarkets announced reductions in the cost of milk and butter. Uh, prior to the retail forum meeting last Wednesday, and certainly the sort of uh, rhetoric from um, Neil Richmond versus the actual delivery, yeah. th- there was a vast difference, and I think that's underscored by the fact that the statement that he released after the meeting uh, was agreed to by the retailers, uh, and he saw there he saw that there were no objections yeah. to it from uh, them. Let's pick up on that. Then Valerie Cox is also with us, studio to go through the Sunday papers. Valerie, good morning to you. What what do you make of th- that idea that Neil Richmond, before the meeting ended, asked if the supermarkets were okay with him issuing the following press release? Well. It meant that he he had really very, very little clout to have to say that to them. You know, I mean, he should have been much more independent than that. I think as consumers, we're really being held hostage by the supermarkets. I mean, if you look at the extent of the uh, grocery market in Ireland overall, it's worth 10 billion a year. Mm. I mean, that's huge money. And there's an interesting piece there um, by uh, Michael Brennan and Lorcan Allen. Yeah, this is the front page of the business post. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, where they're just talking about, you know, the amount of money and the senior food industry, food industry source. I mean, there's always somebody close to somebody, close to yeah. somebody, mm. but they haven't named the person. So the supermarket bosses have described this country as Treasure Ireland mm. because of the higher margins they can charge here compared to other markets. Yeah, I think that's a line that was previously attributed to a CEO of Tesco. They yeah. said that the amount that they were able to get away with charging here for groceries and that their profit lines were so much higher yeah. than in Ireland. And in many ways, Britain. Tesco's figures are more open than some of the other supermarkets. Mm. But it's very, it's, you know, very difficult to know where the minister should be going now. But I think he needs to show a little bit more clout, be stronger, you know, know what he wants to come out of this, rather than letting the supermarkets have maybe a slap on the wrist and then say, are you all right with that, lads? You know, back to business. Mm. I mean, um, I think actually that, that very point was, was articulated to me by a Fine Gael minister um, who, uh, not in a position to name, but did say that, you know, he really should have been going into this meeting with a sense of what the outcome would be. Mm. Um, um, whereas uh, he seems to have talked about a potential outcome, but but has utterly failed to deliver it. So that it was, for want of a better way of putting it, it was just more of a talking shop. An exercise in optics, I think, is, is, oh, a, yeah, is, right, is right. a way of describing it. And indeed, a way some, yeah. someone in Trinidad described it uh, to me. Well, and, and they're speaking about one of their own there. Um, Charlie McConnell, the agriculture minister, is quoted in this, um, or is not quoted, rather, this business post piece refers to what he's doing. Uh, it says that he is progressing legislation to create a food ombudsman. Uh, which will have statutory powers to enforce the EU's unfair trading practices directive. But IBEC have raised concerns about the draft legislation uh, last week um, after Charlie McConnell accepted a Sinn Féin amendment to the bill, which will beef up the investigative powers of the regulator. Now, one would have thought, um, Valerie, that's that's the piece on the front page of the, the Business Post. Yeah. One would have thought that if the food retailers or if the producers... Um, thought that they had nothing to hide or if all of their practices were totally above board then they wouldn't matter a damn if the regulator had the power to investigate whatever because they would say like well 
Investigate all you like, lads. You won't find anything here. Yeah. So the fact that they're raising some concerns about the level of scrutiny they might now be facing yeah, I tells think, you something. You know, they are raising the level of scrutiny, but we've got to remember that many of our supermarkets are private companies as well. I mean, Dunn Stores, for example, it's still family run. Mm. And they're not going to want that level of transparency, if you like, or that level of interference. And it doesn't mean that everything they're doing is wrong either. You know, we can't have this sort of uh, baddies out there and we're mm. the poor little consumers buying our milk and bread and saving 10 yeah. It's not like that. And some of the supermarkets have brought in not just maybe lower pricing, but money off if you're a member of their loyalty scheme. Yeah. Now, yeah. Aldi and Lidl even, um, have started loyalty schemes as well. So I think you've got to take all of that into consideration along with the prices that people are paying. Mm. Uh, I mean, Dunn Stores, they're, they're 10 euro or 50. Yeah. You've got to look at that. Tesco's, the whatever they call it, the saving the club card. card. Yeah. Club card. Club I mean, card. That's a huge Thank thing you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Dunn's and Tesco have that as well. And I think that has to be looked at rather mm. than just what their prices are. But I love the idea of an ombudsman for food yeah. keeping an eye on everything. Uh, mm. I, I won't name them, but this was a, something that we actually discussed on the, on the group chat podcast on Virgin Media News this week where we had a lot of um, listener feedback of people pointing out that on one of those supermarket loyalty schemes, I won't say which, that the cost of a lot of personal hygiene essentials in one of those supermarkets has gone up by so much in the last year and a bit but if you're a member of their loyalty scheme that actually you can get it for the same price that it always was and it kind of begs the question as to why the supermarket is able to sell it to you at the discounted rate or why can they afford to sell you deodorant for a fiver instead of the nine euro that they're charging for someone else who isn't a member of that scheme and and could be a lost leader too well possibly so but you never know um interestingly Hugh because there's there's a few bits and pieces about the retail form across the papers and and Mm. your own is one of them and it's making the observation that uh, Neil Richmond, before going in, was touting the prospect of maybe implementing price caps on some products to try and manage the costs for consumers. And only a couple of hours before the meeting got underway, Simon Coveney and then Leo Varadkar stood up in various parts of Leinster House and said, our advice actually is not to do that. And yeah. it's kind of, they, they removed yeah. the one major stick that Neil Richmond had but, before uh, the meeting ever began. Yeah, I, I mean, he, it, but if he was waving the stick, he was waving it pretty timidly, I thought, even in the media interviews, because he was talking about, oh, we don't want to do the price caps, and you know, we, but we have the powers to do them. Um, you know, I, I, it, it to me, it never looked like a, a, a serious prospect. And you know, the Taoiseach even spoke in the Dáil last week um, of uh, you know price caps. Of, of sorry, of his reluctance to introduce price caps. Um, and it's just you know, again, just go back to what what people in Fine Gael were saying to me. You know, as one minister said to me, it's just not something Fine Gael would do in government. Um, it's not it's not an, it's not a sort of market intervention that you would associate with a a party like mm. Fine Gael with a kind of a, a centre right economic outlook, and um, that they would make such an intervention within the grocery price market. So, um, you know, Richmond in the meeting itself, I'm told, uh, was kind of saying, well, look, you know, we have these Paris to reduce price caps, but there's n- there, there isn't any evidence across Europe to suggest that they've worked in any way, shape, or form. So. Uh, certainly those in the room didn't perceive it as as his, him saying yeah. it in any sort of threatening way or there being any serious prospect. And as you said, uh, the Taoiseach and, and the Enterprise Minister, the Senior Minister in Neil Richmond's department had, had uh, come out prior to the meeting uh, citing advice from the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission mm. that that price caps uh, weren't, weren't warranted. Um, but I mean, 
mean, the other interesting element of this, I suppose, politically, was that Simon Coveney came out subsequent to the retail forum in, in the Irish Independent talking about uh, trying to introduce greater transparency into the market and, and you know, the, the, the possibility that supermarkets would be, that were were, were viewed as price gouging would be yeah. would be named and shamed. So, you know, the intervention it's of the kind senior of minister, almost kind back. of wrestling control back yeah. of the story, but also trying to point out that he actually has the power, whereas Richmond is, is yes. merely a, yeah. a, a minister of state. Well, and also, just as a, a sure. very quick aside, but the... Uh, the, the fact that Tim Lombard, a senator, uh, Fianna Gael's agriculture spokesperson, had before the meeting saying said that there was no logic to having it. This about a meeting mm. organised by one of his own colleagues in Fianna Gael, um, no logic to having the meeting without the uh, primary producers in the room, uh, i.e., you know, the, yeah. the agri-food producers and, and, and the farmers' representative organisations and so on. Um, that, to me, was, was striking. Uh, Tim Lombard, close associate of, of Simon Coveney. So the politics of yeah. this are kind of interesting hmm. as well in terms of what's going on in Fine Gael and how people view Neil Richmond. Yes, uh, very interesting. Uh, Simon Coveney, uh, as you say, um, says he's going to pursue more advice from the CCPC about how to ensure transparency in food pricing. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, before we go to the break, uh, a couple of pieces dotted around the papers. And Valerie, I'll get your, your take on this first. Um, about, uh, pieces about a piece, um, an article oh, yeah. that was published in the Irish Times website on Thursday afternoon um, about whether it was cultural appropriation for pale Irish women to be wearing fake tan and how it now turns out that this may not have been a, well, the arguments are arguments, but that this may have been some ruse by someone who was trying to pull a fast one by using AI-generated content to try and pull a fast well, one on yeah. the Irish Well, yeah, I mean, we know now that it was somebody. They said, I wanted to stir the S... Uh, and this is why they did it. It's artificial intelligence. They wanted to see how far they could let it go. But unfortunately, the Irish Times does not seem to have checked the provenance of the article and, you know, checked all those little bits of identity and everything else before publishing it. So the article got published. There was enormous um, kickback to it. They even uh, there was a debate, I think, on News Talk during the week with Andrea Gilligan even. That's right, yeah. And people were saying, uh, the article actually said, you know, we're talking about race here if people want to start dyeing their skin colour maybe this is racist so you know there's been an enormous controversy over it how the article was created and how scary that is they even uh, generated a computer image mm. of the type of woman yeah. who would be talking about this she was that's, a, that's actually more door. easily done than the text because the text would need a bit of tweaking or that you, yeah. you probably couldn't guess Chat GPT, the main one to produce you an op-ed, the finished article. You need to do a bit of human tweaking. Yeah, but, they the, said about but, the, but the author's image yeah. is pretty easily done. Yeah. yeah, even though it's a fake person. Yeah, and uh, a lady with blue hair, because apparently people who have blue hair can be more aggressive and you know not as well liked and so on. There were all sorts of things went into creating that photo, but also the article itself they say was eighty percent generated by AI. And of course, when the Sunday Independent realised this, they contact the Irish Times who immediately took down the article anyway. Mm. Um, but it's kind of worrying as to what the future could hold and if these sort of articles are already being generated and you know there's a reference in another article there um, about social media and how people grip onto an idea um, we're talking about the attacks on the refugee camp in Dublin there yeah. which I know we'll be talking about later yes. but the ideas get out there into social media and the next thing they're talking about a camp with terror terrorists in it. And this is exactly the same thing, twisting the truth and giving you an article that maybe sounds a little bit true. Mm. And who would want to do it? Clearly people do. Mm. Someone did, Hugh. 
Yeah, look, it's it's very concerning for the, for our profession, Gavin. I think that that something like this would 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 happen, um, and that the you know basic checks don't appear to have been taken don't appear to have taken place here in respect of this piece before it was published, and mm. sort of verifying the the uh, bona fides of the the author of it. Yeah. Um, so look, that's concerning. I'm sure the Irish Times will will who've said nothing about this really, uh, bar a, a couple of lines of a statement. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure they'll they'll go into some detail this week as to how and why it happened. And what steps they're going to take to to prevent it from happening? I mean, certainly within my own organisation, something we're very conscious of. And mm. um, you know, we're, obviously, this technology has taken off like a, a rocket ship in the last six months. Yeah. Um, and it it presents a very uh, real and present danger, I, th- I think, to to the future of journalism. Yeah. Well, um, I kind of just note note the irony that that evidently, and I'm not not saying this to to kick anyone, but that evidently the Irish Times published this piece without having actually spoken to the author. That mm. if it was all electronic dialogue, that that's one thing. But yeah. uh, as I understand it, the person responsible for the article is not agreeing to do any sort of interviews, so to speak. That they are kind of only speaking in text, which then begs the question as to why you can trust yeah, that they I mean, say in text. When, M- Mark Tai has, yeah. has a detailed piece in, in the Sunday Independent today and has spoken with the author um, who's not identified in the piece uh, but but spoken with them via direct message and they say they're a non-binary Irish person who used an existing Twitter uh, account to create the Acosta Cortez. This is Adriana Acosta Cortez, yes. the name of the person who, to whom the article was originally attributed. Um, they... Um, the, the, the trickster, as it's described in the article, is, is said they were Ecuadorian because mm. they uh, they have friends in Ecuador. Um, so um, it'd be interesting to see if this person does unveil themselves in, in the and coming it's done days. And by Gmail with the paper. Yeah. There's quite a lot dotted around the papers today about the events of Friday night on Sandwith Street, just off Pierce Street uh, in the south inner city of Dublin, in which there was... A confrontation between a group of asylum seekers who have been living homeless in that area and another group of people, some of whom were locals, who have some issues with those asylum seekers being there. Um, It all resulted in confrontations which concluded uh, with the belongings of some of those asylum seekers being burnt um, on Sandwith Street, which is not too far away from the public offices where asylum applications are processed. Uh, We're joined by Nick Henderson, who's the CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. Nick, thank you for joining us. I might just start, first of all, with your uh, reflections and your first reaction to the news of Friday night. Yeah, it's shocking and disgraceful, Gavin, of, of deepest concern to us and unprecedented in many ways. At the Irish Refugee Council, we've worked with homeless people since January and people have been robbed and assaulted. But what happened on Friday night and again yesterday when people marched to the International Protection Office uh, is really most serious. Uh, and let's remember that well, there were demonstrations outside direct provision centres in January and February, uh, and indeed last year, there was walls separating people. It was very uncomfortable with people inside, but there were walls. We're now in a situation where, where there's nothing, uh, and people are intense. So it's of most concern to us. It's unprecedented, and people need to be taken off the streets as soon as possible for their immediate safety. What do you believe is the real motivation of those who are attending and organising these demonstrations? We've always tried not to paint people in this situation with one single brush. In our experience, there is a spectrum of people involved from very active far-right leaders uh, through to people who may be being caught up behind that, um, people who should know better. Um, and then through to local people, for example, we 
single mums, for example, or, or families who feel that what far-right activists are putting forward is true and are being, are being swayed accordingly. Um, but I think ultimately people should be taking responsibility regardless of your background and knowledge. You should be taking responsibility for your behavior. If you're walking out of your house uh, and deciding to go to one of these demonstrations in inverted commas, if you're screaming abuse at people who are sleeping in tents, who are here to seek protection and safety, uh, at the very least, you need to be taking a long, hard look at yourself. Uh, we won't focus too much on the, the motivations or, or what might truly be behind uh, those who do show up. But, but suffice to say, for, for those who um, think that they're doing this to try and protect the integrity of their communities or to ward off what they see as a threat from people whose backgrounds can't be assured or documented, mm. what do you say to that? Well, the asylum process in our 30-year experience is and remains and is always likely to be extremely rigorous. People's fingerprints are taken, their bio data is taken in the office, uh, the International Protection Office, where people were demonstrating out, outside yesterday. When somebody goes there, they're subject to an interview. Uh, they're asked questions about their country of origin, where they've traveled from, why they are here, as I say, fingerprinted, which would go into a European Union-wide database. Um, if they have a passport, that would be taken from them. If they don't have a passport, they would be asked questions about why not. Uh, so it, it is an extremely rigorous process. Um, perhaps that it could be more to done, more done, but including by organisations like ourselves and particularly the government to explain more about the asylum process. We've got a frequently asked questions on our website, for example. Uh, but. Ultimately, in our experience, our 30-year experience of supporting uh, refugees, people are coming here to seek safety, uh, and they're fleeing violence, uh, fleeing war, fleeing persecution. Uh, they're not necessarily bringing those things with them at all. There is, isn't there, um, as was established by a High Court case in the last few weeks and months, there is uh, now a legal obligation on the state to provide accommodation for people in these circumstances, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And it's existed since 2018. Uh, the Irish government transposed what's called the Reception Conditions Directive into Irish law in 2018. And that clearly sets out a statutory responsibility to provide reception support, which would include accommodation, um, hygiene and food to people who are fleeing persecution who cannot provide for themselves. So it's not just merely a moral code, it is actually no, no. there in black and white that it's oh, the thing you're required to do. Black and white, very much so. And it was a vo- the Irish government voluntarily transposed that piece of European Union law into Irish law, Reception Conditions uh, Direction Directive Regulation 2018. And so our law centre took the case, the two cases, uh, to the High Court and Mr. Justice Charles Neenan said three weeks ago that it was unlawful to not provide reception conditions to somebody in this situation. Now, interestingly, on Friday, the High Court, um, again, the same judge, heard <coughs> to the, the, the other cases were, which were stacked up behind the two lead cases that we were brought, that we brought, and uh, he decided to adjourn the, the case, all the cases for another two weeks as he saw the situation, or at least the government presented evidence that suggested that the situation was gradually improving. Hmm. Um, So it will be interesting to see what happens over the next two weeks. Now, the government 
are finding accommodation. You'll know, I think, the figure now that people, people who are homeless is around four, seven, five. At the beginning of this week, it was around 580. Mm. So they are finding accommodation, but in many ways, they're also running to stand still. Um, there is, though, of course, the fact that there's a legal obligation on one hand, and then the fact that because of circumstances elsewhere in Europe for the last 15 months, that accommodation is just at an acute shortage and that there are only so many beds that the state can ever provide at any one time and if there is a surplus of people over beds then this is always inevitable to a point or, or is it? I don't think it's necessarily inevitable and but it, I do want to acknowledge and we've tried to emphasise this that there is a huge, huge amount of work being done by one government department and in particular civil servants within that department the Department of Children. Uh, and they have a, they, when we, we speak to people in that department, it's clear that they're working relentlessly. Um, however, there are some very big questions that we think government should be asking themselves, other government departments in particular. Minister O'Gorman wrote to other government departments on the 3rd of February asking for accommodation. I don't think anything came from that. Um, and in the immediate sense, uh, we know that there are accommodation challenges, but we're still able to accommodate refugees from Ukraine including single men from Ukraine, yet we haven't been able to accommodate uh, people who are entering the asylum process, including some couples, uh, and including two or three single women as well. It's not just single men. Um, We did write to the Department of Housing on the 25th of April, recommending that the Department of Housing instruct local authorities, including DHRE, to expand homeless services that are funded by local authorities to support people in this situation. Uh, It's no longer tenable that one service can be provided to one homeless person and not another simply by virtue of their background. We haven't had a response to that letter, but we understand something may be changing there, but that's something to we'll be calling for this week. Okay, we will leave it there. Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, thank you for joining us this morning on the record on News Talk, which brings us to 11.37. Uh, Valerie Cox and Hugh O'Connell uh, listening into that in studio. Um, he was a quite important point there raised by Nick towards the end, which was reminding us of the letter written by Roderick O'Gorman to other government departments in February, asking mm. for a bit more help in finding public-owned buildings that yeah. could be used for um, housing asylum seekers and refugees, which mm. doesn't appear to have come up trumps, really. Well, no. And and, I mean, this has been the problem, I think, since the start of this, is that you have a department that took responsibility for this issue from the Department of Justice uh, back in 2020, um, primarily with the intention of uh, abolishing uh, direct provision. Um, But has obviously been, that's been kind of superseded by this crisis. um, And it's a department that is uh, probably not adequately resourced to deal with something of this scale, has officials uh, working around the clock to try and and resolve these issues, but is, is really... It seems to me not getting a huge amount of help from from across uh, other other departments. I mean, the Department of Housing, in particular, obviously, would you know, in theory, in theory, should have a major role to play here in trying to accommodate and house uh, people coming into this country. Mm. But you know, it's dealing with its own issues, I suppose, in terms of trying to resolve a, a, a major supply uh, shortfall that has existed for well over a decade. So. Um, it's difficult. Uh, it's it's going to be an ongoing challenge. Um, you know, is, is it four hundred and seventy-seven people without accommodation at the moment? I think is is, yeah. is the latest which is, which figure. Which is down from the start of the week, but still there. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Roderick Gorman is um, 
uh, in quoted in my paper today or rather a spokesperson for him saying that he's uh, he's been liaising with uh, Simon Harris the uh, justice minister in relation to the issues that took uh, sorry the the incidents that took place on on Sandwith Street yeah. in Dublin I gather they spoke yesterday um, and he wants to meet with the Garda commissioner Drew Harris to talk about this but also I suppose crucially he's looking at uh, further accommodation coming on stream we were discussing that phrase off air it's a mm. It's a rather odd phrase, but but um, they're they're hoping to have uh, some accommodation in Dunleary, two sites in Dublin. Um, but you know the, the people who are in the makeshift camp uh, on Sandwich yeah. Street, they they haven't been accommodated yet, and it'll be tomorrow, mm. I gather, b- before uh, they, they they might be in a position to do that. So this this is a real problem. Mm. Um, no signs of any uh, quick solutions here. Uh, and really, there does need to be probably more action from government on this front, and certainly a lot more coordination yeah. between departments. And when Roderick O'Gorman goes looking for help from departments, ministers should be trying to find ways to help him. Um, and that doesn't seem to be happening to this to the extent that it perhaps yeah. would have done during COVID nineteen, for example. Well, yeah, well, I'm sure those departments would say that they just don't have the properties to be able to hand over because mm. a lot of them just don't have much of a property portfolio anyway. Um, Valerie, I see that you've got open in front of you an interesting opinion piece by uh, Colin Murphy, Colin which Murphy. is fascinating because I, I thought it was quite balanced about the the nature of the the confrontations shall we say on Friday evening also about what was on Sandwich Street and talking about the realities of the motivations behind everybody there I thought yeah. it was a very well balanced piece Well he's done a lot of work um, having a look at social media and how the story um, emerged and you know people were tweeting and there was one particular tweet came from um, the UK Justice Forum and it said Dublin has a real problem now as imported Kurdish terrorists barricade off a working class area and take over empty houses. 200,000 people had seen that tweet by Friday. And that is the danger of things getting out there Mm. into social media and being totally changed and people getting the wrong impression completely. It's a problem there that 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 does give the wrong impression. Of course it does. Absolutely appalling. And it stirs people up and he actually describes some of them. uh, The combination of some known anti-migrant agitation with upset local people and bored teenagers. I mean, that's exactly what happens in these situations. But I would query the government statement, you know, uh, there's no accommodation for international protection applicants. That's a load of rubbish. We keep hearing they're due to come on stream. The modular units are coming on stream. Mm -hmm. The hotels, wherever it is, is coming on stream. That is absolute rubbish. This country is awash with empty buildings, which could easily be used. And, you know, as somebody said um, in a recent interview, one of the ministers, I'm not, I can't remember who it was. The standards aren't up. Well, hang on a second. If the standards aren't good enough in these empty buildings, sleeping in a tent on a concrete street with no toilets and no water is a damn sight worse. Mm. We've got loads of empty barracks or semi-empty empty barracks um, which could be used. Um, it's the Senator Tom Clonan actually um, came in on this one as well. He agrees with me. He says the Defence Forces has all the equipment to put large numbers of people people under canvas and to administer that safely. And all the Thonishta has to do is authorise an aid to the civil authority operation. So Mm. why the hell isn't he doing it? We know the barracks are empty. We know they're safe areas if they need to put canvas tents, the ones that the army use all the time for people. So why aren't we doing it? I mean, it is a nonsense situation. It's appalling what happened to these migrants. Absolutely appalling. And there are so many others. I mean, there must be at this stage, there's over 500 
think, have been turned away and how many of them are sleeping rough on the streets. It's creating an impossible situation and a very, very cruel situation for everybody. Mm. Um, the, the piece by Colin Murphy is quite good. There's one paragraph which I think is particularly good, but I think that there's... Um, it, it it demolishes a lot of myths um, about Sandwich Street. First of all, that, that Sandwich Street itself was not a place where many people were sleeping. Rather, it was almost a kind of a, a day space because there are so many living in tents around the immigration centre offices that basically that's where they go during the day just to hang out because it become, became like a, a social space for them. It was just somewhere to go. Um, but that therefore then points out that, well, what what is the apparent fear of these people because they are not coming here to take our housing. They, they are not occupying a house if they're sleeping on a tent. And yet people are still going out of their way to try and, and burn them out of their, their places. Um, by Friday night, uh, writes Colin in this piece, one of the protagonists in the protest was calling it the Battle of Pierce Street. And in this digital age, there's almost no connection between the apparent significance of things in real life and the significance that they can acquire online. The facts of Sandwich Street, perhaps five men in two tents, were trivial by comparison, even with the situation on nearby Mount Street. But the narrative was quickly fitted to the trope of an invasion, quote, of male predators. Um, the whole piece is well worth reading. I'm sure it's uh, available on, on independent.ie. It's from page 23 uh, of today's paper. Uh, there is, by the way, on page 19 of the Mail on Sunday, um, something of an assessment of our Eurovision stance uh, from Louis Walsh, who says that we need to find the next young Johnny Logan or Linda Martin if we've got a hope of winning uh, the Eurovision. He says that otherwise, um, Ireland's attempts to try and win the uh, Eurovision have lost all credibility. He says, great songwriters and professional people in the industry won't go for it because they would lose credibility by association. You need to get great people who write good songs, uh, says Louis Walsh in what seems like a statement of the obvious. Uh, We're talking more about the Eurovision um, and how exactly we might go about uh, copying some of Sweden's leads uh, in the second hour of the programme. On the front page of the Mail on Sunday, though, um, a row over the uh, bid to cut the cost of childcare. Well, Leo Varadkar says he wants to cut childcare costs by a quarter in the next budget. Fianna Fáil sources say that he's raising expectations. I thought, Hugh O'Connell, that on this programme, that Roderick O'Gorman, and indeed pretty much any time that any minister was out after the budget last September, that they were talking about how they were going to cut the cost of childcare in two successive budgets to bring it to about half of what it previously was. So is this not already an established government target? So why would Fianna Fáil sources now be trying to dial down the expectations? Yeah, well, I suppose the question is whether Varadkar's demand is is a 25% cut on current rates or is it a 25% cut on 2022 rates? I'm not sure if that's making sense to the listener, but the commitment uh, given by Roderick O'Gorman in advance of last year's budget was reducing the cost of childcare by 50%, on average 50% over over two budgets. So on average 25% reduction in last year's budget, uh, which has taken in effect from the beginning of this year. Yeah. Uh, so would we then be doing another 25% on 2022 rates uh, at the beginning of 2024 uh, or would we be cutting uh, the current rates by 25%? Mm. Um, and so this is the, the national childcare uh, subsidy yeah. um, that, it, that, it, that is, um, it, you know, that okay. most parents but, but, but the row was about like it's twenty five percent off. Which fraction are you doing? Is it twenty five percent off this year's rate or row, last? But like, but it seems yeah. like this Fianna Fáil source is trying to dial down the expectation of there being much of a cut at all. Which I just kind of thought oh, well, was look, what they'd I mean, already I, committed I, to. I, yeah, I mean, look, the thing about it is, is that we're in a situation where these whopper budget surpluses are are going to create a lot of. Um, demands from across governments and a lot of ideas being floated. I think over yeah. the next three or four months, uh, which. Um, <clears throat> 
which may or may not come to fruition. I think a substantive childcare package can be expected in the budget. Uh, I think there's every chance it will go beyond um, the 25% on 2022 rates, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I may have lost a lot of people here. Yeah. But I think that the, the commitment, I, I think in terms of the, the overall commitment from, the, from Roderick O'Gorman, the minister on this, uh, of a 50% cut over two years, I think it could go beyond that um, mm. by the time we're finished in, in budget 2024, considering... Uh, the surpluses and the money available to the governments um, to uh, ease the, yeah. the cost of living, and the cost of living is obviously the biggest issue the government faces, yeah. and it's it's the it's the best way of of the governments uh, retaining some degree of popularity and, and winning re-election. If you found those sums difficult, then I'm sorry that the budget is still 149 days away. Uh, it's going to be a long old summer. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, Valerie, you picked out an interesting piece. In fact, you both wanted to talk about it. I think it's on page three of the Sunday Times, uh, and it's about one of the rites of passage uh, of an Irish childhood, which is that uh, many of us. Have of a certain generation uh, would have been done up in either our finest blazers and suit trousers and we would be given a lovely rosette or you might be done out in a lovely white dress which might even have been made with the toll of your mother's uh, wedding dress and you might have had your first Holy Communion and society is becoming more secular but so too is the rise of having the dress and the party Valerie without yeah. actually having the Holy Communion to go with it. Yeah, now personally I think if you're not in the club as in the church then mm. you don't try to ape what's going on and have these ceremonies. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Of course, you can have any number of coming out events or whatever for your children. They even have them now when they're leaving junior school. They graduate or they graduate from kindergarten. But this thing of having to have something to rival a First Communion is quite ridiculous. There are people organising them now and there's an article here. It's in the uh, Sunday Times from uh, Julianne Corr. It's a fascinating article. The kids aren't Catholic. They're not being brought up as Catholic but they don't want the kids to miss out on what is a milestone event, mm. the First Communion. So they're organising alternatives with bouncy castles yeah. and dresses and little bags where you can collect all the donations. <laughs> and one of the things that absolutely shocked me, which I, I thought was amazing, um, Laura Erskine, she's an independent parenting expert and she says, I just thought this was absolutely hilarious, Parents are spending thousands of euro on kitting out the whole family. Then there's a celebratory party afterwards, catered at home or in a hotel or restaurant. But the children are obsessed. These are the children receiving First Communion are still obsessed with the monetary gifting on their big day. And you know how they're getting their money now? It's being transferred digitally into their Revolut accounts. Because it's a broadly cashless society. <laughs> and if you've got the Revolut Junior, whatever it's called, other cashless wallets. Is it Revolut Junior? Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, yeah. we have a lot of luck going on. Oh, my grandchildren have it actually. Um, yeah. But so you say that like you don't believe that they um, that if you're not part of the club, you shouldn't have it. Like if you are one of the couple of kids in your class, like if you are enrolled in your local Catholic primary school because it's the nearest one available to you, and, and it would be improbable or impractical to go anywhere else, and you're one of a small fraction of kids in second class who aren't getting the communion because you don't subscribe to the faith. You can understand how the kids would feel a bit left out by not having the same sense of occasion that everyone else does. And is is not a seven-year-old really. not entitled to the same no. day out as anyone else, no? A seven-year-old has not made this decision not to be a Catholic in the first place. And I'm certainly not promoting the Catholic Church either. But I think it's total hypocrisy. If you, you know, if you don't have your kids 
baptized or making their first communion. Why on earth would you want to ape something that the Catholic Church is doing? No, I mean, you can go off and do your own thing. But this is something that's being set up parallel with First Holy Communions. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's most unethical. You find your own milestones for your children mm. and you do that. But you don't so, dress so ha- have a party for an eight-year-old at the end of second class. You're halfway through primary school. You've made Grand. it somewhere. You're great. That's, that's, what, that's basically what they're doing. No, it's not. It's very much parallel with the First Holy Communion. I mean, you can see the photos even of this uh, little girl, lovely little girl who's dressed up in First Communion clothes. Mm. You know, if you want to be ethical about this, you don't do that. Go off another time of the year and have an event for your own children. But you, you, the issue seems to be that it, that it coincides with the date of a communion. I mean, that's not a big deal, really, is it? Why would you want to do that? Because everyone else is coming back to the class after having a big weekend. Baptisms. I mean, your That's baby might feel left out. What do yeah, you do? Yeah, but your baptism isn't done in the class of 20 or 30 odd other people yeah, are I mean, all getting on the same day. It's a difference between a baptism and a communion. I mean, a, you know, a child... Well, they, they, at, don't, they don't know they're being excluded yeah, from Yeah, a, a child at seven or eight years of age, you know, might not want to be excluded. They might want some, well, some sort of an a, a child at that age might I say, mean, why? I my concern really is for the parents and the cost of all of this uh, as someone who may face <laughs> this, this prospect in the future and, and Gavin as well. Mm. Um... You know, uh, th- th- this seems to be seems to be a lot of money involved here in terms of the. Well, outcome, the parents the day are to out. blame for that, Hugh. I mean, if yeah. you're going to go out and spend a thousand quid on decking out a little girl, but do parents want to disappoint their children? But that's not disappointing like, do you, your but children. You want to have the child, child other by, by not allowing them. If if a parent has made the decision that the child isn't going to be raised in a certain faith or isn't going to participate in sacraments, then isn't the parent entitled to do something to try and lessen the, sen- the extent of being othered? Yes, but why cla- would you try and ape the First Communion? You know, I, I just think that's ridiculous. And there's a talk here of even, you know, getting ready for the big day that, you know, instead of mm. obviously going to First Communion classes with the priest mm. yeah. or whatever you do, you go out and you do sponsored walks or whatever. Yeah. I'm uh, not, not sure if they're yeah. sponsored. Well, that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, yeah. The Irish Ethical Celebrant Society has been providing milestone ceremonies as an alternative to the sacrament rituals. Yvonne Cassidy, who's a celebrant, hosted a milestone ceremony for her own daughter and some of her classmates who were in second class. Uh, they said that it was similar to a First Communion in ways, but without the religious aspect. We had a lot of advanced prep work, similar to a First Communion, and they're making this a lot less of an attractive proposition. Uh, a lot of advanced prep work, similar to a First Communion, which involved workshops and a sponsored walk. There were about 50 or 60 people there on the day. It was really lovely. And then everyone just went and did their own thing afterwards. We had a few people over at our house and we went to Emerald Park, formerly Taylor Park, the next day. That was a way of marking. Is that not harmless enough? No, it's no, not. It's, not. It's, it's. I think it's too close. I think it's unethical. And I think if you're bringing a child up like that, you don't have the kid going, mommy, mommy, why am I not getting dressed up? You explain to them, mm. you know, we're not following this path. And there are lots of people not following the path. The kid isn't going to be the one, the, uh, the one left out well, I mean, at all. That's the case. I mean, increasingly, it's probably the case that there will be fewer and fewer children in these classes totally. who are doing the First Holy Communion. And what are they doing with those children society? anyway when they're preparing for First Communion? Yeah. Some schools just leave them out to play. Yeah. 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 Well, some you other know, ones just leave yeah. them sitting in the back of the room and notionally exclude them, but they're still there taking yeah. it all in by his own. I, I imagine actually trying to convince a child that actually being left out is all in their best interest will be quite difficult when they're wondering at everyone else buying a Nintendo Switch with their communion <laughs> proceeds and they're not able to. Uh, we will leave it there. Hugh O'Connell is Deputy Political Editor at the Irish and Sunday Independent, Valerie Cox, a journalist and author. Thank you both very much. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.